Hello friend, my name is Ariel Katombela. I am a friend and disciple of Jesus and a communicator of the most epic narrative of all time, the gospel. And welcome to the Free Indeed podcast. In this episode, I'll be talking about a situation that most Christians are aware of. And to be honest, most non-Christians are aware of. Something that took place about two weeks ago from the time I'm recording this. It was a prayer meeting that raised eyebrows, so to speak. So let me give you a bit of background. A video of an American pastor, Paula White, who is and has been the spiritual advisor to Donald Trump during his presidency, surfaced. In the wake of the elections, we were all on the edge of our seats as we watched the neck-and-neck race for presidency in the USA. As victory seemed to sway towards the opposing party, Trump's spiritual advisor called for what seemed like an emergency prayer meeting for God's intervention in the results. Now, off the bat, I want to say that is a great response for a Christian in any situation. When in doubt, pray. When in fear, pray. When in anything at all, pray. So I can honor that. The problem, though, was not that they prayed. The problem was the eyebrow-raising statements made in the name of God. And what I believe, and I'm sure other Bible-believing Christians believe too, is that some of the statements made in this prayer were but problematic doctrinally, especially around the will of God as it pertains to our desires. So I'm going to off the bat say I do not know Paula White at all. I have not listened to a single sermon of hers or read a book or anything of that nature. I know that she was discipled by T.D. Jakes and she is Donald Trump's spiritual advisor and a pastor. That's it. I don't know anything else. So I can't make statements about her character or her theology or doctrine outside of the clip of her prayer. I just will be speaking on her prayer and make statements on what I have seen as a common belief system of people who pray prayers such as this. What I also want to do is speak a little bit into the division and almost this panicked state that a lot of American Christians have been in. I'm not American, I'm South African, but I believe political angst is something that we can all relate to as long as we live in this world and as long as we live in democratic countries. So I'm going to speak a little bit into that and hopefully offer some encouragement and guidelines, let me say, into how we can biblically view politics as well as hope to see the will of God become a reality in our own nations. Okay, so before I get started, I will insert an audio clip of that prayer meeting um, with Paula White so that you can be in the loop and hear it for yourself and hear what, what was said. And I'm going to attempt to break it down. And strike and strike and strike and strike and strike and strike until you have victory for every enemy that is aligned against you. Let there be that we would strike the ground for you will give us victory, God. I hear a sound of abundance of rain. I hear a sound of victory. I hear a sound of shouting and singing. I hear a sound of victory. I hear a sound of an abundance of rain. I hear a sound of victory. I hear a sound of an abundance of rain. I hear a sound of victory. The Lord 
says, it is done. The Lord says, it is done. The Lord says, it is done. For I hear victory, 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 victory in the quarters of heaven. In the quarters of heaven, victory, 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 victory. For angels are being released right now. Angels are being dispatched right now. Hamanda ata ata rata teda baka sanda ata ambo osa tata rite eke banda ata rike didi ashata. For angels have even been dispatched from Africa right now. Africa right now. Africa right now. From Africa right now. They're coming here. They're coming here. In the name of Jesus from South America. They're coming here. They're coming here. They're coming here. They're coming here. From Africa. From South America. Angelic forces. Angelic reinforcement. Angelic reinforcement. Angelic reinforcement. Fika hata anda ata ora bata rata anda eke eke manda rasata. For I hear the sound of victory. 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 Okay, so you heard it yourself. What I'm going to do is break down some of the main statements that were made during this prayer and then get into my thoughts on it. Yeah, I'm just going to go point by point some of the things that stood out. Firstly, I'm sure it's talking about striking the ground for God to give victory for every enemy that is against you and in that case them. I think she was referring to the prophet Elisha's interaction with the then king of Israel, King Joash, who was consulting Elisha about ways they could gain victory over Syria, their current enemies. Elisha instructs the king to shoot an arrow out of the window towards Syria and thereafter he tells him to strike the ground with the arrows. The king only did this about three times and the prophet Elisha gets upset with him and tells him that he should have done it four or five times or five or seven times I can't remember the number and then he tells him that they will only have victory over Syria three times um, you can find the story in 2 Kings 13 verse 17 to 18 so there's only one other account of striking the ground biblically that I can um, remember and my study Bible seems to agree with me on this. So this was when Moses struck the rock for water instead of speaking to it as God had instructed him. And because of that, God told him that he would miss the promised land. So in this case, I believe Paula White is referring to the first case with Elisha and the king because um, it, it seems to be more about victory. And with Moses, he it was a negative thing. So that's where I'm going to assume she's coming from with that statement or that doctrine i don't think this passage or the story is meant to be a prescriptive text it was just descriptive it was telling us what happened so what this means is it's not something we should look at as christians today and say oh hey look there were arrows struck into the ground now we must do it um so prescriptive texts are stuff that you can look at and say therefore me as a christian today should dot 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 insert whatever the instruction is that's prescriptive okay it gives you something applicable to do but a descriptive text simply tells us what happened it's like many narratives in the bible that say this is what was um, i do feel like this text was descriptive however to give benefit of the doubt here Perhaps she was referring to the idea of perseverance, which I guess can be drawn from the story. So like I said, not much I can say about this, but that she's declaring that they will be persistent in their prayer until they receive victory, just as Elisha instructed the king to do. 
Okay, the second statement I want to look at is her saying she hears the sound of abundance of rain and the sound of victory. I think what ticked people off about this is already making a declaration of victory and saying that it's from God without actual tangible evidence of that. But regarding the sound of rain, I think this probably was her making reference to the story of Elijah um, while he was praying for rain in a drought. And the Lord told him that rain would come. And he said the words, go up and eat and drink, for there is a sound of rushing rain. He said this to his servant Ahab. There was no evidence of rain, so he kept sending his servant to go check for a cloud. Eventually, there was a cloud the size of a fist or a hand. And Elijah took that as the sign of rain, which it was. So eventually rain came based on a little cloud the size of a hand. So what I guess she was referring to, Paula White, is having faith in light of hopelessness, which I can appreciate. So that's why that line was there. That's what she was making reference to. Then three, it gets, the plot thickens a little bit where she says, the Lord says it is done. So based on their prayers and based on their intercession and all of that, she then switches up and says, the Lord says, he will grant them what they're asking for. She believes that God answered her prayers. Note how I'm not going to make a comment on that just yet. Okay, um, next, the she says she hears the sound of victory again, alluding to the fact that their request has been answered and God will do what they have asked him to do. So the next one, she says, I hear victory in the quarters of heaven. Um, and basically... She referred to kind of singing and celebration in the quarters of heaven. If that's what she's saying, because I was struggling to hear. Okay, let me mention a couple of issues at this point. My problem with this, my problem with this, is that she's saying that quarters of heaven stopped for American politics and for Trump. For me, I just want to preface it by saying I'm not a Trump fan and neither am I a Joe Biden fan or I don't put my hope in either of them. America is not my country, but also um, I don't think it is a kingdom question like it's made out to be. But I'll, I'll elaborate on that a little bit later. But what I want to mention is a couple of issues that I see with this statement. Firstly, the assumption that the whole quarters of heaven stop and celebrate over American politics and Trump's victory is very telling of her worldview. A view that centralizes America to the point that God and his and the whole heavenly realms are stopping what they're doing and rejoicing over a political situation. This really comes across as idolatry for me. Idolatry of a nation as well as idolatry of a person. As if God and the kingdom of God is subject to what is happening in the U.S. America is undoubtedly one of the most influential countries, if not the most influential in the world right now. I say right now intentionally because many countries have come before the USA. Many empires have come before the USA and are not even mentioned today. Think of Persia, Egypt, all of these empires that were forces to be reckoned with. And I'm sure you're naming a few in your head as well. They were forces to be reckoned with and now their significance or their impact in the world is kind of lost. So when I say that there is a idolatry of a nation, I do feel like people look to the US as kind of the hub of the world or the heartbeat of the world. 
and as if that is a permanent thing. I'm not wishing a downfall of a nation at all, but all I'm saying is we need to be very careful about where we put our hope. It's evident in history that kingdoms have risen and fallen and God and his kingdom do not depend on those nations in order to function in the way that he desires. So that's what I have to say about that. The next point is then she goes into these rhythmic tongues, which I think a lot of people felt most uncomfortable about. I won't comment on the authenticity of her tongues. That's between her and God, to be honest. But... What I can point out that is a little bit problematic in this is that there was tongues in a congregational setting with no interpretation. I have personally not seen anything biblically. I know some people believe in the seizing of the spiritual gifts, but I personally have not seen that in the Bible. However, we can point to um, Paul giving instructions to the church on how to conduct ourselves surrounding these things. And in 1 Corinthians 14, 26 to 28, he says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. That's the first point to look at. Then he goes on to say, If any speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and then speak to himself and to God. So in this passage, what we can see is that Paul is kind of giving a guideline for tongues and how we are to exercise that gift of tongues. What he's saying clearly is that the purpose of speaking tongues within a congregation should be to edify the church, to build up the church. If you speak a tongue in a congregation and there is no one else to interpret, and I like, let's point that out. No one else, not yourself. You can't speak a tongue and say, this is what God is saying. From what we see, Paul's instruction says there should be someone else to interpret. If not, he doesn't say tongues are bad. He says, if not, keep silent in the church, but speak to yourself and speak to God do it as a personal thing and not something that's displayed from a platform of ministry. So there's that. Hope that makes sense. The other point that had people all kinds of offended was this. She said, angels are being released and angels are being dispatched. Angels have been dispatched from Africa and from South America. Now, I <laughs> Now, I'm going to go off the bat and say I have very little knowledge about doctrines of angels and stuff like that. But I'm pretty sure God sends angels from heaven. I think that was one of people's biggest issues, that angels don't come from Africa. It just sounded like she was summoning some other forces. Like, I don't know her heart. I'm going to say that again. But yeah, I'm pretty sure angels are in the heavenly realms in uh, the kingdom of God and he sends them. So that statement was a little bit strange, especially that these angels are deployed from Africa, specifically in South America. I think the question was why. So let's say for argument's sake that she was saying that these angels who were stationed in Africa and South America were in fact sent to the US for that moment for Trump to be re-elected. Let's break that down a little bit. Um, Think about the corruption, the famine, the abuse of leadership, the abuse of the land, the genocide that is taking place in some places of Africa at the moment. 
as well as the injustice, the violence, the hopelessness that is present in some parts of South America. If these angels from Africa and South America were indeed stationed in these places to fight these battles, what I'm hearing is that you and your issues are so much more important that it would warrant for those angels to stop what they're doing there in these very difficult places and go to the US to help your favorite candidate win an election, leaving Africa and South America unmanned or under-resourced in the angel department. Like I said, I have very little knowledge about angel doctrine, but I bet this is so theologically unsound, either way you look at it. And again, it is so telling of her worldview and the value she has for these places. So that's the prayer. Like I said, when I started, I can definitely appreciate any Christian whose response to any situation is prayer. But the core problem I want to focus on is the kind of faith that rests on seeing God as an entity who exists to do our biddings. The belief that God is some kind of butler that panders to the desires of human beings and that if we shout enough, if we give enough financially and, and declare our desires loud enough, he will set aside his own will and concede to ours. And this is simply not true. This kind of faith is often allowed to fester in an individualistic or personal context, but situations like this, situations where one's own ideals and desires are presented to the masses as the will of God, and subsequently as something that God himself endorses, then it begins to expose itself because there is a conflict of interest for other believers. On the one hand, in your camp, you have claimed that God favors your candidate because you're a believer, right? And the injustices you stand against are super important to God, which they are, don't get me wrong. But on the other hand, they're believers who love Jesus, but who will vote for and who are praying for an opposing candidate who stands against another injustice that is very important to them. And I'll say this again, an injustice that is also super important to God. So where does that leave us? How do we determine whose prayer God is going to answer? Is it he who prays the loudest gets the most angels or she who can minimize the other side's issue gets to enjoy the privilege of God being on their side? Like, how does that work? The story I can think of in the scriptures is this story and always comes to mind when I think about politics and conflict of interest within the kingdom and amongst believers. And you'll find this in Joshua 5 verses 13 to 15. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the Lord's armies. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does the Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place that you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. I love this interaction so much. Some scholars believe that this commander of the Lord's armies is the pre-incarnate Jesus. But that's not what I want to focus on. Although you do see many similarities in the way that he interacted with this commander of the Lord's armies and the many times that God appeared to people and how they interacted. For example, Moses telling him to take off his shoes because it's holy ground, um, as well as Joshua's reaction where he bows down and worships this being. Anyways, like I said, I won't focus on that. 
Think about Joshua, knowing that he leads the people of God. I bet he feels like he has the right to ask if this man is friend or foe. The response of this commander though is quite mind-blowing. He does not answer Joshua's question like that. In fact, I'll go as far as to say he makes it clear that he does not answer to man. He simply says no and shifts the conversation from Joshua's agenda to his own. And whether he is Jesus or not, this implies that he's shifting the conversation to God's agenda. The commander of the Lord's army in this moment is about to do the Lord's agenda, not man's agenda. Joshua's response was to fall to his face and worship, laying down his seemingly godly agenda, which is to lead Israelites to victory and concedes to the agenda of the Lord in that moment. He asks the commander, what does the Lord say to his servant? And then the response is, take off your sandals, you are on holy ground. Again, the Lord shifts the agenda from Joshua and his focus on this imminent battle, something that is real, that's tangible. Um, and he shifts it and says, you are on holy ground. The perspective changes in that moment. The Lord shifts Joshua's gaze from his own issues and into recognizing the holiness of God in that moment. I think there is something we can take from this. God is absolutely for us, but God is for God first. He does not pander to our agendas. He has his own agenda and we as Christians are called to submit to that, not the other way around. We don't dictate our desires to him and have him do our bidding. Firstly, we are tainted in our views, our desires, and our hearts, even though they might seem righteous to us. God and God alone is able to not only perfect justice, he defines it too. We must always stop and ask God what is on his agenda in every aspect of our lives. We must get into the habit of asking, God, where are you at work here? What role would you like me to play in it? Note how I don't say, the role that I want you to play in it, but what role, Lord, would you like me to play in your work, in your agenda? Another important thing, and I think this applies so, so much in politics and in our ideas of righteousness and our ideas of justice. Lord, expose my biases and let me see things as you do. Sometimes I think our heart for injustice is real. It's absolutely real and admirable. But as humans, our biases definitely sway us towards one direction or another. As much as we think we're in the right, as much as we think we are doing good, we need to align our perspective with God's perspective so that we can see it from his point of view. So asking him to expose our biases and let us see things the way he does is a great way to submit ourselves to his will. So I spoke about prescriptive and descriptive texts, right? I want to give a passage that is not overtly prescriptive, but I'll show you why it can be taken as prescriptive and applied to issues such as political views and our desires for our nations. It is quite a well-known one and can be found in 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14. It says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear them from heaven and I'll forgive their sins and heal their land. Obviously, this conversation is contextual. There was a situation that was taking place and this was God's response and his prerequisites for him to intervene. 
why I say that this can be prescriptive for us because these points are still very much applicable in the new covenant and with us who are living today. Firstly, my people who are called by my name. These are the people of God. Um, we are now in the new covenant and we are seen as the people of God. If we humble ourselves and pray, again, still consistent. It was real then and it is real now. Humility is constantly pointed out in the New Testament. Humility is something that God admires and he lifts up. That's what he asks of us. So think of all of this in a political situation and where your nation is concerned. What I have seen in this election, and this is just as an observer, is that there has been so much pride from both parties, from both camps. Not Christians who humble themselves and ask God, like I said earlier, to show them his perspective and his point of view. Even in prayer, there is a pride that has been very evident. So I think humility, when praying for our nations, when wanting to see God intervene, is a great place to start. As this verse stipulates. What he also says is seek my face. Again, I've been saying this throughout this um, episode. Seeing God's perspective instead of our own. Seeing what he has to say. Seek his face. Um, not just seek his perspective, but seek him. And in doing that, we begin to see his heart and understand where he's coming from. This is a great way to be on God's agenda rather than our own. Another one is turn from our wicked ways. With this one, what I've seen being evident in this political situation and these political debates is that people of God, Christians, believers, are wanting the world, people who do not profess faith, who do not have the conviction of the Spirit to turn from their wicked ways. It's not wicked to them. It's just life. But as this verse stipulates, we as believers are to turn from our wicked ways. We are to be repentant. So we are to be humble, seek the face of God and be repentant turn around from what is wicked in us searching our own hearts allowing the holy spirit to search our heart and then god says i will hear you from heaven and i'll forgive their sin and heal their land again i will forgive their sin who the believers and thereafter heal their land so i know political conversation can be very touchy and very tricky but this whole podcast for me is coming from a place of those who are one in the kingdom and I'll, I'll say that again one in the kingdom remember the holy spirit unites us we are the body of christ we are the bride of christ we are one what has been very disheartening is seeing the division over political views and the danger of elevating certain justice issues over others and believing that God favors your perspective over anyone else's. That is a dangerous spirituality. I know people often say keep politics out of religion, keep religion out of politics. I'm going to risk it and say I agree with that. Not that God doesn't want our nations to look righteous, not that he doesn't want our nations to reflect his glory. What he doesn't want is for our hope to be in systems, our hope to be in politics. Like I mentioned earlier, nations, empires have risen and fallen, but it is God and God alone in his kingdom who's remained consistent. If a candidate that we don't want wins or becomes a leader, that doesn't flip God off his throne. He's not afraid or shaking and saying, what will I do now? whether it is your favorite candidate or not, whether somebody who seemingly professes faith or not, he is not subject to picking based on what we see or what 
externally is portrayed. God has and always has had the ability to change hearts, to soften and harden hearts, and to still cause his will to prevail. Panic voting, scared politics, scared belief systems has been what has been so evident in this whole election process in the U.S., And my prayer for Christians across the world, not just in the USA, across the world, is that we would see that God is always in control regardless of whether things are in our favor or not. I think of some of the strongest, most growing churches in the world where believers' faith is as strong as ever, where they're walking in righteousness, where they're impacting people for the kingdom. And it's always in nations that don't necessarily support their belief system. It's only where Christians have to believe for themselves, where they have to have a true conviction that is not necessarily backed up by their government, that you see them persist in their faith. Now, I'm not saying I support any president or any point of view or any party. I'm neutral here. But what I'm saying is no matter how things end up, God is always still in control. And he calls his people, the body of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to be his hands and feet in this world, to do the work that we are trusting government officials to do, to spread the gospel, to speak the truth of the word of God, to believe that it sets us free and to share it with those who are in desperate need of freedom. He calls us to do justice, walk humbly and love mercy. What does that look like in the injustices that you are so passionate about? What if the political system can't do anything for you? Then what? Do we fold our hands and no longer do anything? Do we get frustrated? No, we intervene. We become the hands and feet of Jesus in the way that we love people, in the way that we support people, and in the way that we find tangible solutions as well as offer the spiritual solution, which is Jesus himself, Jesus the one who sets free. I hope this episode was helpful. If you have any comments, reach out to me. The Free Indeed podcast is now on Instagram, so look out for that. I will put it in the description of this episode. And let's engage in discussion. If you don't agree with me, I'm cool with that too. (laughs) And I still love you if you're listening to this. If you're part of the body, I still love you as a Christian. And I pray that our unity will show the world the goodness of God. Thank you for listening, and I will catch you in the next episode.